tonight is the uh, kind of overview of Exodus, kind of going through a bunch of, uh, try, when I say go through the whole book, that's what we're trying to do is move through and get our big picture. And then from the big picture, <coughs> we're going to dive into the details. Uh, so I always like to start a book that way. And so when you look at Exodus, Rescued and Redeemed, it's a bit of an origin story. If you look at the nation of Israel, they're always referring back uh, to this time. And, and it's, uh, we like origin stories. If you look at our culture uh, today, we love to trace history back and see how someone arrived at where they are. If you look at all the movies, and I'm not a huge uh, comic book movie guy, but they're all making origin story movies. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love hearing about, let's say, Abraham Lincoln. I love to see how he got to where he was. What framed that out? So you look at history. I love the backstory that's there. Uh, origin stories in our own families. I, I quote oftentimes my own grandfather, so my mom's dad, and how he came to the United States, how he came to faith. That's something that's important to me. And so I'll trace through his history. Uh, he was a vegetable grower, unknown vegetable farmer in Holland makes his way to the States because there's more freedom. He ends up growing flowers because he realized people will buy flowers and not vegetables as much. And I still remember I'm in my 20s. I fly to California. I'm at an unknown grower because I'm trying to sell him stuff in California. So I'm all the way over. And in the conversation, somehow or the other, he asked me, are you related to the Van Wingerdens? And I said, yeah, that's my mom's family. What about Art Van Wingerden? I said, well, that would be my grandfather. And then he says, we were petrified 30 years ago that he would come to our place in California because we knew he'd put us out of business. So that's one thing. I saw, and then another time I'm in Holland, I'm at a grower and my dad and I are together at this one. And I still remember the guy started or restarted an argument. He says, years ago, your grandfather came here and he says, we're growing things too wet. And I think, and he gave me a list of things, and then says, what do you think? And I, I said, I think that I haven't carried on the tradition of my grandfather, and I don't care how wet you grow it. <laughs> but it was just interesting to me. So an unknown vegetable farmer in Holland uh, has a neat story, he, just a unique individual. Obviously, you may not think he's that unique, but I do because it's my grandfather. And I look at his origin story, how he built his business. I, I love... Um, I love hearing about how he came to faith. I've shared that uh, in a sermon before. Uh, joy is an important thing. So he was, uh, if you're Dutch and you're not Catholic, you're usually Dutch Reformed. And the Dutch Reformed are not happy people. That's why those paintings from Holland are always stoic and sad. It's like they want to suck life out of life. Uh, it's what they do. That's their goal. And so my grandfather walked into a church in New Jersey because he saw people leaving with joy. And he walked in and being who he is, he wasn't a brass person, but he was not a person that would not ask questions. So he walked in and said, what are you happy about? Like, what's going on? And so I love how um, tracing my roots back to that. My dad came to faith through his relationship with my mom. And so if you're looking at where my family's faith legacy, and I'm not saying that is more important than individual faith, but if I trace my roots back it goes to my grandfather walking down in Jersey and seeing joy. What is our faith legacy? It's joy. And so those origin stories impact my life as we look at that, and, and it trickles down from there. Uh, Exodus is an origin story. This is when the people, uh, the children of Jacob, become the nation of Israel. This is the, the massive movement. They refer back to this all the time. This is, you'll even see this in 
Um, Stephen's message when he preaches in Acts, you're going to see this all through Scripture. This is an origin story. It is the history of salvation. It is the framework of the redemptive story whose foundations were laid in Genesis. So in Genesis, we have promises to Abraham. Uh, Genesis 3.15, you have a promise of a Savior. Well, here we're seeing the framework of redemption. This is God revealing himself to us. Uh, little side note as a bonus, um, <coughs> as you dive into Scripture, uh, our temptation, and you'll hear me say this, and I, when I say I say this unapologetically, you're never going to hear me say, try to read three verses a day and get working into Scripture. I think you should read the Bible. Uh, to be honest with you, I'll say it to the Wednesday night crowd, I think you should read the Bible through in a year. I think an adult is capable of that. If you've never done that, give it a go. I can say this, it will change your life in perspective because you need to read through the whole story. But you read Scripture to find out about God. You don't read Scripture for your emotional healing that day. Now, you'll find emotional healing and you'll find growth, but you read the Bible to hear about Him. And Exodus is, is God revealing Himself and He's building the framework so we understand what redemption is all about. We see the framework of redemption here and we see the, the, the Passover uh, lamb and that's going to build all the way through Scripture. And so we're going to watch that be or unfold in front of us. Um, we're going to watch a massive group of people who are helplessly and horribly enslaved in Egypt become a nation freed by God. Um, it's a supreme example of God's grace and it justifiably dominated the thoughts of Israel throughout all their history. The Exodus story is critical to them. Uh, the laws, by the way, we often view Exodus, and there's going to be two little movies I did here. I, I mentioned the Bible Project in my class, and it may, it may not be the way you learn. Uh, I just found it neat. There's two six-minute videos that will sketch out a little bit what Exodus is about, and we'll watch those as we work through here. Uh, but oftentimes we look at Exodus, and it's Exodus 1 through 18 that we think about, but 55% of Exodus is actually them at Mount Sinai and they're getting the law and they're getting how to build the tabernacle and God's instructing them how they're going to function as his people. Um, these are laws that are then fulfilled by Christ. Matthew five seventeen. this is Jesus saying, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so we're going to be seeing laws. We're going to be seeing God lay a framework that we're going to see fulfillment in the New Testament. And so you can understand that this is a critical book. All books of the Bible are critical. But as you look at the redemptive story, here's a critical component. Uh, these two guys that wrote, wrote a book about understanding or how to know the Bible or how to read the Bible named Fee and Stewart, they state this, Exodus plays an especially important role in the rest of the biblical story since it tells the basic story of God saving his people from bondage and of his giving them the law so that they will become the people of his presence. <coughs> Excuse me. His presence is a huge part of Exodus. You're going to see God be among his people. You're going to watch him lay out the foundations of the tabernacle because he is going to dwell among his people. God wants to dwell among his people. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Revelation 21.3 speaks of God's objective to dwell with us. John writes there that I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Exodus 
is the tabernacle we're referring to, and God is coming to dwell. And I hope in a, in a small way I can build the tension associated with Exodus that we need to know the Exodus story, that there's things to be gleaned from Exodus that tell us about God that are important to understand who our God is. A large portion of Exodus is focused on God's dwelling and presence. Over half the book surrounds the mobile dwelling of God. He goes into so much detail that he tells them what to do in detail, and then we hear the story of how they accomplished what he told them to do in detail. Oftentimes we read that, and, and I'm the same as the rest of you. Uh, you're reading something and you're like, wow, I, I really didn't need to know how tall the pole was 14 times. But God was specific for a reason, and we're hopefully going to be able to glean from that why God was so specific. Well, there's details associated with it, but what we're going to find, uh, and even when you go to Hebrews, right, does he reference the temple? No, he references the what? Tabernacle, over and over again. And you see that going, uh, verse 34, and it speaks again of God's presence. If you're looking at the end of Exodus, chapter 40, and you're down to 34, it says this, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You move down to verse 38, For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, Exodus means the way out, but it becomes repetitively obvious, and I use the word repetitively on purpose because it over and over repeats this, that it is God's way out. And I say that because one of the things that we gain from this book is God's working His plan in His miraculous and wonderful way. Uh, You can read a lot of commentators, a lot of people that write, and one of the struggles they're going to face with Exodus is they're going to try to explain Exodus with nature. How could this have happened normally, right? Well, I think, and I think it's clear in Scripture, I put what unfolds cannot and should not be explained with the normal course of nature and history. And you can't with Exodus. That's why I say it's repetitively obvious that God is working. And so Exodus is a confrontational book. If you don't look at God as being the infinite, supreme, all-knowing, all-powerful, only God, then it will confront your conscience. That's why unbelievers are confronted. If you're an unbeliever, you, you can't stand Exodus because God's miraculous work is unfolding. If you deny God's existence or the reality of a supernatural working, Exodus is going to be a massive struggle for you. Uh, through our history, even American history, People who we would maybe think are godly or believe in a God. And I'm going to use Thomas Jefferson as one. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was not a saved individual. Uh, He might have been religious in some format, but he wrote a whole Bible that removed one thing from it. Anything supernatural. So he would have ripped Exodus to shreds trying to explain it because it's filled with miraculous working. And again, I'm not doing this because I'm a person that likes to to kick on history. It's just reminding us that even in our own legacy that we have in our country, a lot of the people we may think thought a certain way struggled with the fact that God worked, that God was involved. If you don't believe in a supernatural God, you don't believe in Mary having a baby that was the son of God, you cannot 
handle this idea of a resurrection. You cannot handle the idea of a redemptive plan. You can't handle creation, right? That's why our world has to get rid of everything because at some point you have to believe in a miraculous God or you believe in no God at all or a God of your own making. And so Exodus leaves us there. It it elevates God far above his creation. So God dwells with us. You see that in Exodus, but you also see God far removed and not in a sense of distance, but in magnitude from humanity. It becomes obvious that he's God and we are not God. And that's what we're going to see all through Exodus. Um, It tells us and lays the framework of how we would respond to the one true God. Uh, This reality helps us grasp what it means to truly fear Yahweh, which means to spend one's life in obedience. Oh, I was trying to steal it. I was going to steal the zebra pen. It's nicely worn in. I thought this is good to go, but you know. Don't loan me anything. That's what, that's what he's trying to exemplify because he just sneakily try to keep it for myself. That's, that's a problem I have. I blame it on this cord that keeps me trapped here. But uh, it really, it's just that I'm a deep down a thief, I guess. So, um, but this idea of fearing Yahweh, which, by the way, means that your whole life is in obedience to him. And that's what we're going to see in Exodus. Uh, the unbeliever reads the laws. And what do they say about God's law? He's a dictator. He just makes us do these weird things. He wants us to just jump when he says jump and crawl when he says crawl. And he wants us to do all these weird components. But if you read Exodus and you're reading it from the perspective of knowing God, you see a God who is holy and he's actually helping his people so that they can live a life that would honor and glorify him. Now, Exodus breaks down uh, roughly in the middle first 18 chapters being what most people think of the Exodus story. When you think Exodus, and it means way out, right? This is my way out. Then you think of exiting, right? So when we land at Mount Sinai at chapter 18, and then we sit there for 10 months, and we have a lot of things happening, well, it doesn't feel like an Exodus anymore. It seems like we're stuck. And so we don't think of Exodus in the connotation, and so we can Easily, I know in my own mind, if you would ask me, what's Exodus? The reason I know to say something different is because I've just gone through it all. But typically we think of Exodus as getting out of Egypt and then a little smidgen of covenant law and tabernacle. But really it's getting out of Egypt and then 55% of it from 19 to 40 is at Mount Sinai. And we're working through how we're interacting with God. Um, again, I've never shown a video before on a, on a Wednesday night or a Sunday or anything. There's these two videos, uh, again, the Bible project. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't commission these people to write this. I, it is what it is. I always say this whenever I hand a book out, whenever I show a video, not that something's wrong in it, but you know, obviously I, I didn't do it. So I didn't write it. So hopefully we can use this. This is the first overview of Exodus, um, That'll come up. Actually, I didn't even do the one slide that breaks it out. Getting Israel out of Egypt, that's the first half. Uh, And then getting Egypt out of Israel, kind of the second half that goes there. But we come to this story here, and hopefully we can watch it. Six and a half minutes, two of these videos. We're not going to watch them back to back. But if you don't mind watching this, and then we'll kind of dive in and talk some more. The book of Exodus 
It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's Exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites, they're trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. So hopefully that helps you see a little bit what is going on. We're going to look at that first half, getting Israel out of Egypt, kind of as an overview. And again, as we work through this in the spring, we'll work all the way through all those plagues and kind of frame that out. Uh, but getting out of getting Israel out of Egypt, our story uh, now fast forwards. If you were in Genesis and we're sitting there, we fast forward a couple hundred years and we find Jacob's descendants enslaved in a foreign land. So what was once a rescue, once was once quote-unquote, salvation from a famine, <clears throat> now becomes enslavement. But God has plans. He's not finished with them, nor will he be thwarted by the wickedness and power found in Egypt. And so he raises up a deliverer, and that person is Moses. And as we work through um, Exodus, we're going to see that deliverer be born, which is, we saw that in the, the, the little movie clip there. You see Moses is born, and we see his early life uh, one thing they didn't mention is we're going to see the deliverer 
fail. So we're going to see him be born and see his story. As he gets to the age of 40, we're going to watch him fail miserably. He's going to commit murder as good in the most human of ways. Look at Exodus chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 14. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Talk about a human solution uh, to a human problem right there. So he is taking things into his own hands. Obviously Moses, and again, when he's grown up, we oftentimes think that this is some 18-year-old boy now man in their mind. But this is a 40-year-old guy. He's lived a good bit of life, and yet this is his response. This is failure. He's taking the deliverance of his people into his own hands. He's solving it his way. And as you go on in the story, and then, um, and when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together, and he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killed the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And so we watch the deliverer come, Moses. Moses is a critical figure in all of Israel's history. Obviously, you're going to see Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses is important. There's a lot of Moses' character that is extremely helpful and we should emulate. There's things that he does that are very worldly. This is a very worldly action. And what we'll find is that this now deliverer who is taking matters into his own hands is going to flee, and there's going to be 40 years wandering in the wilderness, so to speak. And we're going to find then at the end, we see the deliverer restored, and he's going to follow now God's way. It doesn't mean he doesn't make mistakes, but we see him come. If you go to Exodus 3, 4 through 6, and you can see how quickly we're developing a story. We moved hundreds of years and we're at the Exodus story. We have Moses being born. We moved through 40 years in a verse or two, and then we're going to go through another 40 years in, in less than a chapter. And now we're sitting here at Exodus 3, <coughs> 4 through 6. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see the stump of the burning bush, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not thy thither. Put off the shoes from thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And you see reverence there. Jump to verse 10. And he says, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt and Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that, thou, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? That's a legit question. Forty years from, from that point, he tried to do that. He'd killed an Egyptian, and he'd try to intervene and be the, be the helping judge and, and the, the, the arbitrator right between two Hebrews, and that didn't pan out for him. And so he asked a legitimate question. And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people, of, the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And what we see is God restoring the deliverer, but now it's on God's terms. This is not Moses moving forward in his time frame. Now it's on God's time frame. It's going to be done God's way. Moses struggles with this calling, though. He states uh, every reason why he's not the one to do this. Uh, God does not relent, though. And though Moses angers God, God provides Aaron as a spokesperson. 
And what I want you to see is we see God using the failed and reluctant Moses, but he's using God's time and in timing. It's not his way anymore. It's God's way. And we see God orchestrating his promise to Abraham to bring his descendants out of slavery and back to the promised land. If you look at uh, Genesis 15, 13 through 14, it says this. This is God now talking to Abram. We're going back in our story. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. And so I just want to remind you of something said to Abraham centuries before, just in case people want to talk about the Bible not having prophetic word and not being miraculous. So unless you're going to totally spin around how God works, God, centuries before, told Abraham that your descendants are going to be in a strange land. And he says, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation, when they shall serve, will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. We're going to watch Israel leave Egypt, and they're going to sack the country. People are going to give them the gold and give them things, and so they're going to come on out. But where deliverance is necessary, there is often oppression. And so we meet the wicked oppressor. That's Pharaoh. And by extension and involvement, all of Egypt. I will talk about this. But when you're killing all the male children that are born to the nation of Israel, that's something that the whole nation of Egypt participated in. So they are involved in this mandate. And I think that the one of the things the video does is kind of connect us to how evil Pharaoh was. And I hope you don't miss the slight. I don't know if that was their intent, but where you can make killing Hebrew male children something that's positive, killing the babies. And how have we in our wicked culture spun the murder of innocent children around to be a positive, to be a right, to protect our livelihood? Why did Pharaoh want to kill the, uh, the Israelite babies, boys? Why would you do that? Well, otherwise they'll become what? Yeah, they're going to take over. And so we're going to protect our lifestyle. And so we'll murder children. And what's different about our world today? We want to protect lifestyle. And so we will condone murder. And so you see that in a not a weird way, maybe sad or ironic way, uh, we don't really do anything new. We just repeat history and we're repeating it again. But here's the oppressor. Uh, coming in. Uh, and what you see is the world resisting God. And then you're going to see the world defeated by God. These plagues are very physical in their nature. Uh, and think of the oppressive darkness. Think of, and the bugs are what blows my mind. I can't stand bugs, especially when they're all on your face and all over you. Uh, physically, the plagues broke them down, but spiritually, the plagues broke them down because they do conflict with the gods that Israel or Egypt worshipped. And so God is just trampling on their quote-unquote belief system because it's, it's a lie. And then you're going to watch it militarily crushed in the sea. Egypt is powerful. They're, they're taking over lands. And so sometimes we think that Egypt just kind of sitting there hanging out. There's conquest out and back. They are, are a growing nation. And so their military is a big deal to them. And God physically, individually, crushes Egypt and spiritually in the sense and, and, and our world might look at this and say, oh, that's again another mean trick by God, but he's shattering their false belief. 
He's breaking that completely. And then the military in which they put all their confidence. Look, the pharaohs spent most of their time on campaigns. And that's what they did. They went out to fight. They came back home. They went out to fight. They come back home. And their military is crushed in the sea. Um, but you cannot ignore with a deliverer and with an oppressor, there are the oppressed. And that's the people of Israel. Uh, we're going to watch them be freed. They're going to leave. But we're going to also watch them fail. How quickly... Do they start complaining after leaving Egypt? I mean, they get to the sea and they write to say, did you bring us here because there are no graves in, in Egypt? Is this why we left so we could get killed? They cross in the most miraculous way. They watch, physically watch the military of Egypt get crushed. And afterwards, the second they get the first I don't have water feeling, oh, it was so much better in Egypt. We love the delicacies of Egypt. Talk about a skewed memory, right? Before they get the covenant, and we're going to look at this, and, and literally within days, they break the covenant that they make with God. As Moses goes up, they've made a covenant with God. They don't want to approach God because they're deathly afraid, which there's an honest fear that should be there. Moses is climbing the mountain, and then they're going to break the covenant, make a golden calf, and, and literally disobey what they've committed to obey. And I write down here, they prove themselves unworthy. They are just like us. So remember that. It's not how horrible is Israel and I would be different. I want you to recognize they're unworthy just like we are unworthy. Uh, they journey, but they're quick to throw stones. And that's something you're going to see in the nation of Israel constantly repeated. And we need to learn from them. We need to grow through that. Um, yet they, they do get out. And I, this is a, a slight map. And this map shows one route that people look at. There are like seven different routes that people think Israel left. And so I'm just throwing one of them up here so we can look at it. Well, we can dive in and see some different ideas there. Uh, and it all depends on where you think Mount Sinai is because they don't have that all pinpointed yet. Or let me say they don't agree on it all there. <laughs> so there's plenty of conversation about where and what sea they crossed and there's a lot of conversation about where mount sinai is a lot of times it's pulled up here and there's no dip down some people have them crossing up here some people have them crossing the bitter lakes there's a lot of differences that come in there this is just giving you an idea they do leave egypt and end up over here we're going to see them in this story we're going to watch exodus and we're going to land at mount sinai so we're going to see this portion of the journey take place and we're going to spend most of our time at mount sinai for the rest of the book um, we arrive there and now god is going to give them his covenant god's people have moved from slavery to being saved redeemed and rescued but the work is not over we now need to see them sanctified reflecting their status as god's people by their actions so the covenant he makes with them involves a participatory component they are committing to god they're committing to obey his laws and i hope we're able to connect clearly here to see how we ignore what god has done how quickly we return and how much we need to grow because that's what you're going to see from the nation of israel you're going to see an unworthy people just like us and we're going to watch a people constantly need reminding what are we going to see from god in this his mercy and his grace I would challenge you as you're reading this, and if you start seeing God in a way that says, well, I think God is tough on them. God should cut them a break. 
Well, then you're missing what God is saying there. One, you're underestimating how horrible Israel is, and you're not seeing how amazing God is in his mercy and his grace. They've been delivered from oppression, but they need to be prepared for worship. So as they come to a stop at Mount Sinai, we find a people out of Egypt, but now the work of, and that's getting Egypt out of them. And then we have another short video here we'll watch. I want you to realize what we're going to see in 19 through 40. You're going to watch 10 commandments be given, which by the way is translated, if you're doing it word for word, the 10 words is what they would say. It's going to be followed up with an expanded law, an expanded covenant. I think it's 55, I'm not positive, that amplify those 10 commandments and and deal with all types of behavior. How do I interact on this component? How do I take care of this detail? But also we'll find a people that fall into sin immediately after confirming a covenant and who need forgiveness and restoration. Uh, The people of Israel again prove unworthy yet God remains merciful and gracious. And again, this is just the second half of this. We'll go ahead and watch this, and then we'll kind of wrap up from there. The book of Exodus. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant. They will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now, the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. So Moses writes down all of these laws and he brings them down to the people who again eagerly agree to enter into this covenant with God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses Moses that he wants his holy and divine and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel, which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship, and first with Israel, and then somehow one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this 
sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold, and the jewels, it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans live together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace, at least in theory, because right here something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain. They can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. Now what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own people? And so God accepts Moses' intercession and he relents. And while he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here at this point in the story that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means he knows he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent and he can't. He actually can't go in and that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realized. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question as the book closes is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about. But for now, that's the book of Exodus. So again, hopefully that gives us a quick layout of seeing how it ends. And actually Leviticus is a fascinating book. 
If you read Hebrews and Leviticus tied together, uh, Leviticus was the book that Jewish kids would learn first. And based on what people have done research, it's the last book of the Bible that Christians tend to read. So it's a fascinating, which will be what we do next after Exodus. So we'll get to that uh, here at some point. I just want to kind of look through briefly what they just talked about, getting Egypt out of Israel. There's a ratification of the covenant. There's a rebellion. There's reestablishment. And then there's a relationship. And I want to kind of close on that. But just looking at the ratification, if you go to Exodus 24, you're going to see them agree with God about his covenant. We're going to dive into this seven and eight. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, will we do and be obedient? So just so you see that where it says they they agreed to it, they did. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord have made with you concerning all these words. But it doesn't take long for them to rebel. If you go to Exodus 32 and you look at verses four through six, you watch them when it says in verse one, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, which is fascinating. They're at Mount Sinai as the movie shows a little drawing. God's presence is there. It's right in front of them. But they're looking and saying, Moses hasn't come down. And I I would hate to speculate, but I'll speculate. Maybe they think, oop, God wasn't happy. Let's find something else. Or there has to be another way to worship God. There has to be another way to approach this. We can do this our way. What are they used to seeing in Egypt? Well, there's plenty of idols. There's plenty of gods. And so what they do is they come to Aaron and let's say, let's, let's make us something. And so four through six is Aaron received them out of their hand, uh, at their hand, the, the earrings and the gold and everything else, and fashioned it with a craving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, which is just fascinating because you just committed to God and, and covenant to obey his covenant, which there's 10 laws that are the main gist of it that are pretty straightforward. And you're breaking not the 10th one, but literally the first and second one to do this. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it and Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And so you see Aaron spinning a little bit, trying to be like, well, it's old. They took this too far. We want to make sure we don't forget God here. This is just a representation of God. And you see him twisting. And they rose up early on the morning and the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And by the way, nothing will indicate false worship like sin. And so what they did when it says rose up to play, they engaged in the gross worship that the pagans would do. And that's gross immorality, drunkenness, everything under the sun they were engaging in. And so you can know that's not worship when you're engaging in sin to accomplish it. And so you see this rebellion here and then you see God and, and you look at that and the whole story of Moses praying to God uh, and we'll, we'll unpack that completely is fascinating because you see God saying something and Moses pleading and you recognize that Moses is more concerned for whose glory in that moment, God's, than his own. Because God says, look, why don't I just wipe these people out and start over with you? Now, if you're that one person, like, well, God wants to start over with me, right? 
this is amazing. Well, we've seen that happen before, right? We saw you go back to Adam and Eve and God creates a perfect environment and then they sin. And what do you have with Noah? You have, after Noah, a purified environment. How long does it take for sin to just rear its ugly head? His own son. And it digresses from there. And what we watch is Moses. And, and it really is God revealing Moses' heart almost to himself and that he petitions God for God's people and he's concerned with God's glory. And God's promises. And so you see the reestablishment of the covenant. Go to chapter 34, verse 10. And again, he says, And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee, or an awesome thing that's there. Uh, this will lead to God's presence in the tabernacle among his people. So I end with the idea of relationship and that this is just someone had built this in Israel, obviously just kind of giving a little bit of the scope of what the tabernacle and the tent around it would look at. And we're going to break out all the components when we go into the tabernacle and look at it. But now we're going to watch the relationship through the covenant. If you go back in Exodus to twenty nine forty three, when God was talking about the tabernacle, he says, and there I will meet with the children of Israel and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. I'm going to fast forward again to Exodus 40, 34. We've read this verse already, but I'll read it again. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so as the video ends, Moses is not able to enter the tabernacle. But I want us to also see this reality that is the tabernacle because Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle because God was there. And I want to kind of close, as we look at this, we're going to see a key component of the tabernacle, and that it was God was with them. God, throughout all of Scripture, seeks to be with His people. He is a God of relationships, and He desires an intimate relationship with His children today. And the tabernacle is a physical manifestation of that. And so uh, we're going to walk through how God's going to give more laws and how in Leviticus, you know, God is holy. Peter repeats that in First or Second Peter. I can't remember which one. But we're going to see how God expects his people to respond and to act. And we're going to see a lot of those laws in Exodus and even more in Leviticus later on. But I don't want us to miss the idea that God has them build a tabernacle with, with a lot of significance. And as they would say, symbolism tracing all the way back. But there's a point. He is going to be among his people because God is not a distant God. It's not some random deity that's out there. or It's not God of the ant farm uh, that's just there piddling and playing with it. And I mention this because oftentimes in all or many false religions, their God is distant. Uh, for Islam or Muslims, their God is Allah. They just repeat a prayer. They don't pray to him like we pray to our God. The idea of communicating to your God and that he cares about you is, is distant from them. It's ridiculous. The idea that Jesus would die on the cross and be the son of God and die for people, they can't reconcile that in their mind because their God is completely far and foreign and away. And so it's this distant <coughs> appeasing of Allah that they're constantly trying to do. We serve the one and true God, and on through Scripture, He's a God of relationships. And that's where the tabernacle lands us, is again showing us how God wants to be among His people. And I'll go all the way back. When we start Genesis 1-1, 
and the Spirit of God was hovering, right? And we talked about this handling, vibrating. He's intricately involved in creation, and he's been intricately involved in the development of his people as they constantly fail. What do we see in Genesis? New beginnings. God's mercy and grace extended to humanity, though they don't deserve it at all and are completely unworthy. And now we're zeroing in on Abraham. We watch Abraham's life, then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then to Joseph. We've spent a lot of time, and now we're moving forward to a whole nation of people. We see Moses as the representative now, but we're watching God constantly having and seeking to have a relationship with his people, even though his people are not worthy of that. And I believe that's very encouraging. That's something we need to know, we need to learn, and we need to study. And so I hope you can be excited about diving into Exodus and and stepping forward and understanding this. Uh, Wednesday nights, that's my goal, is that it's knowing your Bible. You understand that, so when you go back and read these uh, books of the Bible, you, you grasp the importance and understand what's going on, and from that, God keeps growing you and keeps developing the relationship uh, He has with you.